The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. June is busting out all over, unless you're listening to the podcast sometime in December. But right here, right now, while we are talking to you, it is one beautiful day in New York City, and I hope it is where you are. I'm excited because we just finished the 12th Main Street Vegan Academy, which means that there are 15 brand spanking new vegan lifestyle coaches and educators out in the world, going back to places like Argentina, Puerto Rico, Michigan, California, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and around and about to carry the good word that we can eat plants and save animals and have rather magnificent lives. We always have so much fun here in New York City at the Academy because we take trips. So we go to places like Moose Shoes for shopping that didn't hurt any cows. We go to High Vibe where we learn about detoxing and raw foods. And then in the evenings when I am tired and basically stay home with my dog Forbes and watch Lifetime movies. The group goes out for fabulous dinners. Last night they went to Gust Organics, a restaurant here in New York that started out being organic but not vegan. In fact, kind of not at all vegan. It had quite a paleo following and now they have taken the big plunge to go vegan. And you know what? They're having some trouble getting that word out. So if you're in the New York City area or if you come to New York City, uh, do check them out. They are down in Greenwich Village, 6th Avenue and 14th Street. They would love to say hey to you. And the people that we are going to be saying hey with today are a couple of fabulous gentlemen who happen to be right here, right now, in my dining room. You can't imagine how exciting that is because 99.9% of these shows are done by phone and Skype. So I talk to fascinating people, but I almost never get to see fascinating people. So this is really great. And if you would like to join the party, all you have to do is call in. You can call 816-347-5519 from anywhere on this planet, 816-347-5519, and we'd be happy to take your questions about today's topic. Today's topic is fashion, compassion, and the male point of view. And my guests are two incredible fashion designers and animal advocates, John Bartlett and Joshua Catcher. And I'm going to let you know a little bit about each one of them, and we're going to jump right into this fashionable conversation. John Bartlett hails from Ohio, graduated from Harvard University and the Fashion Institute of Technology. He served as a designer for Willie Smith and Ronald Shamask before launching his eponymous John Bartlett collection in 1991. 
He officially launched his newest line, the Tiny Tim Collection, in the fall of 2011, lovingly created to help raise funds for the designer's nonprofit animal rescue organization, the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, which helps support independent rescue groups across the country. Bartlett is also in partnership with the Bonton Stores, where he designs John Bartlett Consensus and John Bartlett Statements. And in his non-professional life, but heartfelt life, he has long championed issues of animal rights and animal welfare. He's worked with HSUS, the North Shore Animal League, and other animal rights organizations. And he's a vegan because this is Main Street Vegan. Joshua Catcher. Oh, my gosh. One of my favorite people. Joshua Catcher is about to get hitched. And I just heard I can't go to the wedding because it's going to be when I'm doing an academy. My heart is broken, but I'll be there in spirit. Joshua Catcher is an adjunct professor of fashion at Parsons, the new school for design. He is currently writing his first book, Fashion and Animals, and has lectured on that topic at Princeton, the American University of Paris, Parsons, Brown, UPenn, and FIT, among others. Catcher started the men's ethical lifestyle website, The Discerning Brute, in 2008 and launched the Brave Gentleman label and e-commerce platform in 2010. He's also been part of our Main Street Vegan Academy faculty since the very beginning, and he designs my husband's favorite hats. It's kind of embarrassing. We go out with people, and we're talking about stuff. And my husband will pipe in with, uh, excuse me, nobody has yet asked about my hat. So that's how cool they are. Now, to get started on this conversation, I was getting a blow dry the other day, and they handed me a magazine, and it happened to be Harper's Bazaar. Now, I've got to tell you, I grew up on fashion magazines. When I was 10 years old, I was in a hotel in Rome, Nobody spoke English. There were no books in English. But somehow I found a Mademoiselle magazine, the late, great Mademoiselle. I got into the elevator, and this was back when people ran elevators, and this really good-looking young Frenchman said, Ah, Mademoiselle, c'est français, n'est-ce pas? And it's like, I'm going to read these magazines every month for the rest of my life because people as good-looking as him almost never talk to me. And I did that. I started reading them. And then I went to fashion school in London uh, when I was 18. And I remember having a calendar with the dates marked for when British, French, Italian, and American Vogue came out. I was really into this stuff. And then I became an ethical vegetarian. And then I became a vegan. And I would turn the pages of those magazines and say, oh, my goodness, was all of this cruelty here last year? Well, it has been for many years, and it didn't change, because yesterday when I was getting that blow dry on the cover of Harper's Bazaar, right now, this year, 2015, there was this awful picture of a horse on on his or her hind legs doing some kind of trick, and a woman holding a whip to dominate this horse, And somehow that's supposed to make us want to go shopping for clothes. Help me, Joshua, why do they do that? Uh, That's a big question, and it's a deep question. And I think that when you look at fashion magazine covers throughout history, you'll see that this is a trope. This is a repeated image that we see again and again. And a lot of the magazines... A lot of the magazines use animals because they know that people love animals and that we're drawn into this idea of being close to animals. Uh, So animals captivate audiences, they they gain readership, and uh, the magazines know this. So they put animals on the cover because uh, it's simply, we want to look, we want to be close, we want to have that interaction uh, unfortunately, that interaction in this case is an interaction of domination. And uh, um, But if you look at old Vogue magazine covers, if you look at old, um, you know, even old Harper's Bazaar covers 
from the early 1900s, you'll see uh, you, these images again and again, horse, people riding horses, horses doing tricks. There's many fashion labels that have horses as their logo. Um, we, we are an animal-obsessed culture, and it presents this very interesting disconnect. So, John, what's your experience with how the fashion industry sees animals, or do they really think of them at all? Well, it's interesting because uh, before my, <clears throat> pardon me, quote-unquote awakening, when I started thinking about animals uh, not as objects and started thinking and stopped eating them, uh, before that I used to use animals in my runway shows. And I had once I had a horse, I had a ch- uh, chicken, um, and I used to use my dog and my ad campaigns for a company that I used to work with called Gurkha, which was all leather. So my dog, my rescue dog, would be sitting on a leather chair surrounded by leather bags. And I made no connection to it at all. And I understood that people love seeing animals, love seeing them on the runway. There was something very exciting about it. And yet I was using leather. I had used fur a couple of times, which was very uncomfortable for me even then. Um, but people think about luxury and they think it's a leather bag, it's a fur coat, it's a reptile snakeskin belt. And sadly, that's what's being shown over and over and over. And Joshua's right. There's so much um, imagery, including animals in these beautiful fashion shots. And I think most people just see the animal and they see the outfit, but they don't, they're not making any connection whatsoever. So do we think that this is a more cruel industry than others? I mean, we know the food industry uses animals, the pharmaceutical industry uses animals, the entertainment industry uses animals. Where does fashion fit in there? And I guess I want to say specifically, talk about Anna Wintour. And and I know fur was on the outs, and then some people say she saved the industry. Help me out here. You guys know all this stuff. Well, I think before we address the issue of magazine editors right now, the question that you have, the first part of the question, um, is this industry crueler or as cruel as the other industries? And I think the answer is that we live in a society and a civilization that um, is systemically exploiting animals in every, in any industry on an industrial level. But I think the interesting thing about fashion is that the popular view of fashion is that it's trivial, that it's uh, somehow unimportant and doesn't have impact. It's seen as this frivolous, fun thing. And meanwhile, this is a global fashion industrial complex and a global fashion industrial media complex. So the... Um, the ramifications almost go unnoticed because so many people view fashion as something that they don't participate in or they don't really take seriously. And we should take it very seriously. It affects billions of animals, ecosystems everywhere, workers. This is a, this is an industry that has serious large impact. So while the food industry and, and some other industries might be taken more seriously from the, the position of looking at how they impact animals, um, the fashion industry is sort of brushed off, and uh, especially in academia. It, it is until very recently that fashion is taken seriously in, in academia. Yeah, I think you're right, Joshua. And what's um, what I find interesting is that people do look at fashion and clothing as kind of superficial. They don't. Many people don't relate to what they're seeing in the magazines, although it's incredibly aspirational. And so many vegans, I think, and people that are interested in, in animal welfare will not relate to fashion at all. So to them, they don't even, they may see a woman wearing a fur coat running and they'll run after them down the road. But in general, they'll, they'll look at the fashion magazines and just make no connection because it's so not them. Hmm. Whereas they'll look at an advertisement on TV for Burger King and they'll be like, ooh, I can't stand that. Yeah. And um, fashion is very... Um, it, it's a fascinating industry, and um, some, and it's an industry that I love, but it makes me very sad because the people that I know that work in fashion are all incredible people. They raise money for amazing causes. Uh, the fashion industry was the first industry really to get behind the AIDS crisis, the breast cancer crisis, and yet when it comes to animals, there's an incredible blind spot. And 
Victoria, you had asked about Miss Wintour, uh, the editor in chief of American Vogue, and she is an incredible supporter of the fur industry. And I do know that she encourages designers to use fur. And for her, that's just, you know, that is the highlight, the high point, the most creative material, quote unquote, that one can use. And so many people, um, even some that are, are uncomfortable using fur, for example, will still use it because they want to gain traction and they want to rise in the uh, in the ether world of fashion design. I see this happening on a, you know right in front of my face, being at Parsons, where the industry solicits students. The fur industry will offer incentives. They will offer free product. They come to the school and they and they greenwash what they're doing and they present it as this natural, renewable resource that's you know environmentally friendly. And uh, and they and also these students are struggling. They, if somebody came up and offered me thousands of dollars to include fur in my runway show um, and training and fly me out to Copenhagen and wine and dine me, it's going to be hard to say no as a struggling student who's in fashion who might not have all the information. Uh, and so we're with concern to fashion and animals um, right now I feel like the industry has a bit of a, a crisis and a bit of an identity crisis specifically and some of these designers that you mentioned um, and even editors they consider themselves to be animal lovers and I find that so, so strange yeah there's a couple of people that I know that are fashion editors that are huge into rescue um, and they're really into their pit bulls etc but they show up wearing fur and again there's that whole thing of why do we love dogs, wear cows, and eat pigs? It's that whole carnism question about how we just can't, we don't make the connection. And, um, you know, I love having my dog, but, oh, yeah, I want that leather bag and I want that fur coat. And sadly, dogs are being used for fur. And um, I think once, once we kind of start making those connections, hopefully people will stop um, – just investing in things that are ultimately inherently cruel. Yeah. Well, you've used the phrase, Joshua, fashion carnism, which I think is exactly what you were talking about. Yes, I think the Melanie, Dr. Melanie Joy's theory of carnism um, can be applied directly to fashion, where wearing animals is just seen as a given. It's not seen as a choice that somebody's specifically making. Huh? Um, it's seen as part of just the natural order of things. We wear leather, we wear wool, we wear fur. That's just how it's been. It's how it's always going to be. Um, and the carnism enables otherwise humane people to do something that's not humane without really fully realizing what they're doing. And we live in a carnist culture where these choices that we make every day that harm animals are not seen as choices. They're seen just as business as usual. Yeah. And I have to say, um, with that in mind, like I have some friends that work in fashion um, and not in fashion that are vegetarian or vegan who still wear leather. And to them, the choice that they're making, I think, for their food is more of a health choice. But again, they're, they're not embracing the whole lifestyle that's available to them. Well, I love that you use that word whole. Because everybody talks about being holistically healthy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm into holistic health. But how can you be holistically healthy when cruelty and environmental degradation are part of it? So it's kind of a mental leap. Yeah. I think if people knew the reality of the production of how things are made, we would be having a very different conversation. The fashion industrial media complex does a brilliant job of concealing the production processes that go into the uh, as they like to call it harvesting and culling of, uh, of animals and their and their body parts and I think that when we get a glimpse behind that curtain and see how these animals are living the conditions that they're in the the, uh, the experiences that they go through, um, it doesn't really become a difficult choice anymore. It just makes sense. It's in line with the values that we already have. What a brilliant way to look at it. 
So we need to go to our first break. We're going to come back and find out the history of each of you, how you got from where you started to where you are now, something about the history of the use in fashion, which is really fascinating, and then about what vegans who wish to be fashionable can do about it. Stay with us. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. Just like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace. And explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'll light a candle in your name. It's Kitchen Table Karma. Make kind food choices. Watch more good come into your own experience. Feed your body with bright, fresh, colorful foods from nature and develop the glow of radiant health. Learn how to easily reap these benefits in your life with Victoria Moran's latest book, The Good Karma Diet. Eat gently, feel amazing, age in slow motion. Including stories from real people whose dietary change graced their lives in remarkable ways. Plus, 40 delectable superfood recipes from culinary alchemist Doris Finn. Available wherever books are sold, as a print edition, an ebook, or a deluxe Kindle or Nook book with 30 minutes of audio-visual extras. The Good Karma Diet. Share the love and love your life. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I just heard that new promo for my latest book for the first time. Isn't that fun? Well, it's fun for me because it's my book, The Good Karma Diet. I hope you will all want to read it and have some good karma. It is available in a deluxe ebook edition with Joshua Catcher, one of our guests today, um, doing some audio and video about... Um, getting dressed and making things better. And speaking of that phrase, John Bartlett, our other guest, has a brand new website called getdressedchangetheworld.com. Uh, his other website is johnbartlettny.com, and you can find Joshua at thediscerningroot.com and also bravegentleman.com. So I just want to know, the history of you guys, then we'll get into the history of, of fashion. Where did it all start for you, John? Well, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, total like Brady Bunch suburbia, and I always loved clothes. And like you, Victoria, I used to actually read and just pour through old Vogues, and that was where I got my fashion obsession. I remember Brooke Shields and all of these incredible fashion moments in Vogue, you know, draped in furs, et cetera, and it just nothing ever clicked for me. Uh, I went to Harvard undergrad, studied sociology, and then I uh, moved to New York City and went to Fashion Institute of Technology and studied menswear because no one was doing menswear, and I loved to be able to make something that I could wear out that night to the nightclub. So 
I fell into menswear, studied tailoring and knitwear, and had some incredible internships and um, started my own label in the early 90s and have done um, so many different things within that. Um, and I've just, I really have loved my whole career creating clothing. And then over the last five years, uh, when I became vegan, that whole equation started changing and shuffling. And it's taken me a while to kind of figure out how can I relate to the fashion industry and still hold on to my values. So I started with a friend, Julia Zabo, a website called getdresschangetheworld.com to really celebrate and elevate the idea of what vegan style really could be, what it looks like, and what is available out there for us uh, crazy vegans. Oh, that's really exciting. It reminds me of um, Brenda Davis, who's a registered dietitian. She's been on the show. And she became vegetarian and then vegan thinking she would be kicked out of the Dietetic Association. She didn't know if, if she could keep her profession. And I think it might be even a little bit scarier with fashion. So, Joshua, you were vegan first and then fashion, I believe. Yeah, my my story is uh, a little different. Um, I, I didn't really identify with fashion until... I saw it as something that was a vehicle for making change. And um, I grew up in upstate New York, um, you know, typical, uh, typical, you know, lower middle class family. My parents were both public school teachers. Um, and I grew up reading comic books and listening to punk rock. And um, I really developed this celebration of um, counterculture and I think that there is a fashion element to that, the, the visual identity that comes along with uh, the heroes that I would read about in the comic books and the villains that I would read about in the comic books and also um, the music scene that I was into and, and fashion played a role into that. But I, I more saw myself as anti-fashion during that time period. Now I look back and I know that that's a bit of a contradiction. But um, I got into fashion just because um, I, I realized uh, that it's a way that we form our visual identities. It's the way that we communicate who we are to the outside world. And there's no reason why the way things are made shouldn't also inform the way that things look. And we, there's something that I, that I actually discussed in your uh, main street vegan Academy called aesthetic irrationality. And that's something that's really important to realize is we look at something that's beautiful and we consider it a good and we look at something that's we might consider ugly, and we see that as a bad. And so that's that's what aesthetic irrationality is. It's looking at uh, taking something that might just be a beautiful object, and even though the production process is horrible and terrible, we can still see it as a good because it's pretty. Uh, and that's a problem with fashion. So you got into fashion without any background or training, but you found out more recently you have some heredity. Yeah, I, I realized <laughs> I was looking um, on Ancestry.com. A friend of mine got really into it and found some stuff in my family and found out my great-grandparents were glove makers in Gloversville, New York. And that was at the time I was having gloves made in Gloversville, New York. And I realized that um, my, you know, it was in my blood, I guess. And my mother was always sort of a fashionista. She always... Uh, loved getting dressed up and looking great, and um, my grandparents also. I have all these photos of my family from um, early 1900s New York, just in these three-piece suits, like standing out in the street, looking like um, you know any of the any of the period piece shows that we watch today. Um, so there, it is in my blood, but I didn't really fully embrace it until more recently. And I think also I had a resistance to the. I, I was I was fearful of this cliche that I was worried that I that I would become, and as a gay man, I think that I was worried that you know I'm a gay man in fashion. That's a cliche, and I want to avoid that. And I have given you know that was something that was uh, so silly to be worried about because I think fashion is such a integral and important and powerful place to to be. 
It is indeed. Well, when I think about that, I don't have direct blood heredity in fashion, but I was really raised by this woman who was hired to take care of me because my parents both worked, and this was before daycare, and she would often change around certain words in the Bible or from Emerson or somebody, and she would always say, the Bible says your body is a temple, you're supposed to decorate it. So I got my fashion from her. It was it was a religious uh, religious thing. So how about a little bit of the history of animal use in fashion? You talk about this a lot, Joshua, in your academic world. Yeah, I think that animals have been a part of covering the human body and decorating the human body since the earliest archaeological finds. Uh, we look at the oldest cave paintings and the oldest um, burial sites. And there's always been this presence of either emulating animals through clothing or wearing animals, um, being with animals. And they are our fellow earthlings. They're, they're these creatures that we evolved alongside for millions of years. So it only makes sense that they're very much a part of our lives. Uh, it wasn't until... Um, there was two significant things that happened in more recent history. Um, in during uh, the 1300s, King Edward III passed the sumptuary laws, and the sumptuary laws were making it illegal for anybody who wasn't a royal or a knight or somebody who was within the court and someone of noble standing. Um, most of only those people could wear most types of fur and especially ermine. When we see pictures of kings with the white fur with the little black tufts, that's ermine fur. And if you were somebody that was a, a peasant or just a normal person and you wore that, you could be put to death. And these, these laws lasted for hundreds of years. So you have this culture, a generation after generation of people believing that only, the and, and it being enforced, that only the most powerful people wear uh, these types of furs and these types of velvets and these types of lace. So it established this very d- distinct um, class separation between those who wear these things and have power and those who don't. Uh, so fashion became this very visual way of distinguishing power. And then the next significant thing was Queen Elizabeth I. She was the first fashionista. She had 3,000 gowns at the time of her death. And, at, you know, for for Queen Elizabeth at this time, it's crazy thinking about, even by today's standards, having 3,000 dresses is just outrageous. Uh, but she was the first uh, person to really make the idea of a trend, something that where fa- fashion was changing quickly. Before that, fashions did change, but they changed over time. They changed out of maybe a new technology was invented or out of a need. But change for the sake of change... The idea of a new season after new season just to see something new and um, and different, that was started with Queen Elizabeth I. Fascinating. Mm, sure is. I, I love what you said about the ermine because I got to meet Muriel the Lady Doubting, who is a co-founder of Beauty Without Cruelty. Her husband was the late Chief Air Marshal Lord Doubting, who masterminded the Battle of Britain. So after they were married and he had become uh, a lord, they were invited to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1952. And they were told, at your level of peerage, this is the kind of robe you are supposed to wear, and it has to be ermine. And they were vegetarian. And they had it made from fake fur in 1952. Who knew? And she showed me pictures where they're all in Westminster Abbey doing the promenade down. And they looked like everybody else. It was pretty good fake fur back 60 years ago. The 50s were a time when they really figured out that piling technology. And it was because of carpets, making carpets with creating pile. And, uh, yeah, there's some great faux fur companies from the 1950s. Borgiana, was that one of them? Borgiana, I think it was called. They had supermodels, you know, the supermodels of the day wearing this, and the advertisements would say, you know, better than the real thing, and um, it was a really interesting moment where faux fur was being elevated above uh, above actual animal pelts. 
Well, I remember some of those times, not the 50s, but in 1969, I think it was, there was an ad in a lot of the magazines with celebrities. I remember Mary Tyler Moore was one saying that they would never wear fur. There was a time when Vogue and some of the other magazines weren't going to show fur. Then that went away. And then in the 90s, there was another big anti-fur surge. And that went away. How can we keep it from just being a surge? I don't know. That was really... um, I remember that's when I came to New York was when the whole anti-fur movement was happening. And if somebody had fur on, we would just scowl at them. And all the models were posing an ad saying, I'd rather go naked than wear fur. Madonna would wear a T-shirt that said that she was, you know, fur-free, et cetera. And meanwhile, flash forward 20 years, they're all wearing fur, and they've all embraced it. And it is. It's a conundrum, and it, it really shows how – it shows the power of certain editors. It shows the power of money, and it shows the power of the industry where this is now, you know, people are – there's no ethical issue for these people anymore. And the, uh, the progress I think that we made in those early days, it's, we now have to find a new way to speak to that because we're not winning and the fur industry is really gaining ground. Um, and more and more people are looking to it as a way to, um, express and reflect their own sense of royalty as it were, sadly. It's unfortunate that one of the thing that things that happened as a result of the anti-fur movement um, is this idea that if you wear fur, that you are now a rebel. That if yeah. you, that wearing fur is counterculture, and it couldn't be further from the truth. There isn't, you know, exploiting animals is the most one of the most mainstream, boring, problematic issues that we that is just prevalent and it's everywhere. It's insidious. Um, so where, there's nothing rebellious about wearing fur, but aesthetically it's rebellious because the anti-fur movement is perceived as a group of do-gooders. And being a do-gooder in fashion is seen as boring. Yeah. So you reject what is boring and you embrace what's exciting. And excitement comes from controversy. It comes from being, uh, quote-unquote, an individual. I mean, I don't really understand what that means in the context of modern fashion. Um, but I think that... The fur industry has been incredibly successful because of the amount of money they spend on marketing and uh, outreach and uh, all of the activities that they do around young designers and emerging designers and students. As soon as the anti-fur movement was happening, they immediately pivoted and started investing in students and knowing that those students would end up being some of the big designers and gaining loyal, loyal customers through doing that fascinating yeah. all the intrigue behind these things that we see so you mentioned um, joshua that the f- uh, fur industry talks about being environmental and so many people really believe that about leather that if you're wearing well, fake anything but certainly shoes that aren't leather they'll tell you that you're destroying the planet how do you guys see that well i think that um it's a good question because people, a lot of people will say, oh, well, I wear leather because it's a byproduct of the food industry. So what's the big deal? And again, so many animals are raised just for their leather and they're not consumed and the whole animal is not used. Um, I don't personally know enough about the faux leathers. There's a lot of new faux leathers and suede that are coming out that are made from recycled materials, recycled polyesters. Uh, I think more and more people that are creating higher-end faux leathers and faux suede are much more thoughtful about the process and creating closed-loop factories and about waste and the environmental impact. And I do know that the leather industry, um, and Josh, you can speak more about this, the amount of waste and the amount of pollution that's involved in that is um, incredible. And all, and it, it, it it's shocking. And I think if people understood that, they might consider trying to find um, alternatives to their leather. Um, and exactly, and to, to pick up uh, where you left off concerning the actual numbers, it's shocking. When we talk about the leather industry, we're talking about 6.4 million tons of hides and skins every year 
on an annual basis, there's 6.4 million tons of hides and skins processed, and that's according to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization statistics. And to get a visualization of what that number means, it's so big it's kind of abstract. So I want you to picture 19 Empire State Buildings. That's how much that weighs, and that's, that's every year. Every year there are 19 Empire State Buildings worth of leather produced. And then when you consider the amount of chemicals that need to treat those hides to preserve them, leather is skin. It's designed by nature to decompose, um, to go back into the dirt like, uh, like all living organic material. Uh, but these toxic chemicals need to be applied to it to preserve it, and you have this whole system of toxic chemicals, pollution, and then the livestock industry. We know now, we've been reminded for the last 10 years by the United Nations, by scientists everywhere, that the the single greatest cause of the worst environmental problems is livestock. That includes sheep, that includes cows, that includes all animals used in the livestock industry. Even, Even the head of Caring, who's an organization that represents many of the top luxury fashion brands, even Caring admits that livestock is the greatest cause of the worst environmental problems. Um, so what are we going to do about it? That's that's the real question. It's, it's not up for debate that this is one of the worst environmental disasters that we're dealing with. I think the, the real question is what, what other options do we have? I think the real answer is vegan fashion. And <laughs> we're going to talk you. about that. When we come back from this break, come back with us for more Main Street Vegan on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on A Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. 
Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. This show has gone so fast. I guess that's what happens when uh, two or more are gathered to do something wonderful. I hope we're doing something wonderful here and so happy that you're part of it. So, vegan fashion. You know, that's an interesting phrase. Kind of like when people say vegan food. I don't eat vegan food. But then they taste some, and they're just thrilled to pieces. So what about vegan fashion? What role does it play? Well, it's interesting because when I think about vegan fashion, um, I think a lot of people have this image of totally hippie-fied, crunchy granola, hempy, um, flowing, and not very with it or editorial looking. And I think that Within the fashion world, there is so much vegan fashion. Basically, anything that's made from um, a plant or from a synthetic is vegan fashion. And so there's so much out there. You just have to kind of look for it. And that's one of the reasons actually why my friend and I, Julia, created GetDressChangeTheWorld.com. It's because we want to elevate the idea and show people what vegan fashion can look like. And I think picking up on that, where the excitement around um, vegan fashion, I think, really is going is these new innovations that we're seeing. Um, there are some huge, I think, all of the exciting, most exciting innovations that are happening in uh, in the realm of textile development are happening in the realm of vegan uh, materials. And it might not be being marketed that way, but the, the synthetic biology, um, we are able to grow uh, there's a company called um, Bolts, Bolt Threads, and what they did was they figured out how to synthesize spider silk. So they are now in San Francisco, I think they're on the West Coast, uh, in San Francisco maybe, um, and they are producing synthesized spider silk, and you'll be able to make silk out of that. And this, this is no, you know, no spiders involved. We're able to grow leather in the laboratory. We're able to grow. There's a company starting out of Iceland that's growing fur in the laboratory. We uh, we're able to create all of these new exciting materials, cutting out the most inefficient aspects of it. So in so many ways, this is superior. It's better and uh, than the traditional animal materials. And in addition to that, we have wonderful recycled materials. Um, one of the materials I work with in my collection is made from uh, diverted waste cotton and diverted waste polyester that's then recycled uh, into these beautiful tweeds. Um, just it's it's mind boggling that more of the um, of the prominent designers haven't ventured outside of what is considered traditional to look at all of these new exciting innovations. And I'm trying to bring an institute to Parsons that focuses on highlighting these innovations and creating incentives to use them. Ah, so it is the wave of the future, more than paying students off to use fur in their collections. And it isn't just about sacrificing giving things up. It's about looking at this huge, huge area that is being overlooked and sourcing from that. And there's actually many more options when you look outside of the box and, uh, and you'll be happily surprised. The materials are just so dynamic and so rich and so beautiful. And on top of it, the way that they're made is also beautiful. So John, tell us about the tiny Tim collection and about the t-shirts and other things you do for farm sanctuary. Absolutely. Um, I started a collection um, in honor of my three-legged Rottweiler pit bull, tiny Tim who lost his leg on Christmas Eve, so his name stuck, Tiny Tim. And when he passed away, I started uh, volunteering at some of the city shelters where about uh, 30% of the animals are euthanized. And I met some incredible people doing rescue there, and they said if we had more money, we could save more animals, dogs and cats, get them into boarding, get their vet bills paid. So I started a foundation called the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, and I created a T-shirt line. Uh, that you can find at johnbartlettny.com that raises money for people doing rescue and adoption. And then expanding that concept, I worked with Gene Bauer at Farm Sanctuary and created a series of T-shirts celebrating the farm animals and raised money as well for Farm Sanctuary. And uh, it's really fun wearing an iconic animal on your chest because so many people, again, have such a a response to it, and then it, it kind of opens up the conversation to speak about 
rescue, veganism, etc. Exactly. One could also do that with a fabulous Tiny Tim yoga bag. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, I was just given that as a gift. So yeah. I will carry that proudly. Great. Proudly. I've just gotten into aerial yoga. Oh my gosh, it's fun. Being upside down makes the world look right side up. At least that's how <laughs> I see it. Now, as I said, we just finished a Main Street Vegan Academy and we had one man in it. Lots of women, one man. That's kind of traditional. Once we had as many as four men, and I thought the revolution was underway. But now we're back to one. And when I go to vegan events and animal rights events, it's pretty skewed to the distaff. So I know Joshua, the discerning brute, is geared to men who care. So talk to us a bit in our last five minutes here about the male point of view and why it seems to me that men can be so difficult to reach. This is a very complex, complex question. And, you know, this could be its own entire episode, (laughs) but I'll try to paraphrase. I started the discerning group because I noticed that there was this lack of representation for men within the discourse that was going on around sustainability and ethics and animal rights. And there was no real aspirational, imagery or content that men could look to to feel like they saw themselves reflected in it or to feel that they identified with it. And I think traditionally the qualities of compassion and empathy and caring are seen as feminine qualities. We live in a patriarchal culture. If you look back to our deepest roots, um, our civilization is based in patrilineage and that patrilineage is defined by animal sacrifice. If you look at you know the old, the, the Torah, the Old Testament, um, animal sacrifice by men is how we passed on our names. It's how we showed the world our potential threat. It's how we gave we give birth by choosing to not kill the person. So if, so by my not killing you, you are born. And we see this psychology, you know, manifest in many different ways in modern culture. And there's a wonderful book, if anybody's interested in this specific topic, there's a book called Brutal, Animal Exploitation and Masculinity by Brian Luke. And I highly recommend it. It's a very, very interesting read, but it takes a deep, deep look into why men and masculinity is so so identified as around um, power and destruction and cruelty and uh, and sub- and subduing those that are powerless and those that are less powerful than you. Um, but yeah, the discerning brood. I was just hoping that this would be a place that um, there are heroic and aspirational uh, ideals around men that care. You can be a protector, a defender, a hero. When you look at things today, like um, the plant built uh, bodybuilding team, there are these guys that are. In one way, uh, I mean men and women, in one way they are playing into these uh, stereotypes of what masculinity is by being bodybuilders, but at the same time they're showing that you can still be this strong, powerful, masculine person uh, without harming animals. Yeah. And I think that um, the whole idea of real men eat plants, is, it's slowly growing, but in general, when I announce that I'm vegan to a group of men, they, of course, you know, start saying, where do you get your protein from? And I have a lot of great jokes now that I've prepared for that. <laughs> but um, there's a masculinity thing about I need protein, I need meat, and all of the advertisements and all of, I mean, our whole culture is based around men eating meat. And that's such a it's, it's difficult, difficult um, identification, I think, for men to let go of. And they don't want to be perceived as weak. And yes, you're right. So many more women are in rescue and are the forefront of the vegan movement. And uh, but the men that are doing it are so much more sexy. And I think women really are drawn to these men who have a real side of compassion and caring alongside of, you know, their masculine edge. Well, that wonderful documentary that's coming next year, Game Changers, ought to be a game changer yes. about how, how that whole image of masculinity is changing. So we've got just about one minute each. Can we get a final word from each of you, Joshua? I think that when vegan fashion is being considered, it might be difficult for people to practically include it in their everyday thinking. 
uh, ethical fashion tends to be expensive, and uh, and it's hard to to find where to get it. So I would look at um, the websites that we both provided, and I would I would say shop thrift, and when you can save up and support a brand that you really believe in. Wonderful, John. And I'm just going to ditto Joshua for lack of for for time considerations, and we loved being here with you. Thank you so much. Well, I loved being here with you. I think it's so exciting that ethics and fashion are coming together, and certainly both of you are rock stars in that area. JohnBartlettNY.com, GetDressChangeTheWorld.com, TheDiscerningBrute.com, BraveGentleman.com. Woohoo! We are on to something. God bless you, everyone, and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. At Metaphysical Romp 2, we demystify metaphysics to help you live life at a deeper level. One of our key principles is the recognition that you always have the power to choose how you respond to any situation. Instead of asking, why did this happen to me? A better practice, which aligns with the metaphysical principles we share, is to ask yourself the question, how can I use this for good? We promise you'll experience a transformation in thinking that will reap huge dividends as you master the art of living metaphysically. For new perspective and spiritual insight, listen to Metaphysical Romp 2 with co-hosts Rev. Paul Hasselbeck, Rev. Bill Holton, and Rev. Cher Holton. Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time, here on Unity Online Radio. In quiet moments of prayer, let go of any concern. Anchor your trust deep in the realization that with God all things are possible. Never doubt it for a single moment. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. You know the saying, a good deed is its own reward? Well, moving toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle is one kind and compassionate act that isn't just its own reward. It will also reward you with vibrant health, boundless energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, and according to Yogi's and Unity's co-founder Charles Fillmore, even give a boost to your spiritual life. On Main Street Vegan, the radio program named for the popular book, Victoria Moran will make your move in a vegan direction easy, fun, affordable, and delicious. With enticing topics and entertaining guests every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Culture is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as modern popular culture transmitted via mass media and aimed particularly at younger people. But can it be meaningful, spiritual even? The hosts of Pop Conscious think it can be and that it can be fun to explore too. Malena Don and Stacy Macris Ross will be your amateur cultural anthropologists examining pop culture and spirituality every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on Pop Conscious on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Is there a difference between the spiritual teachings you know and how you live your life? Does your day-to-day experience reflect what you truly value? Are you ready to receive your life? 
and live the gift that you are. Join Janice Campbell, licensed Unity teacher, author, and coach each week as she shares inspiration and tools to help you identify and dissolve the limiting beliefs that prevent you from living the fullest expression of what you are. Talk with Janice live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Central on Receive Your Life, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life. 